The Old Testament text is the 103rd Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. One of the fears I have is that uh, I will lose my memory. And probably I'll forget, if I lose my memory, that that was one of my fears. (laughs) Um, I've known people... Uh, over the years who, you know, have been near to me and dear to me who have forgotten who I am and uh, even forgotten their own family members, uh, forgotten even significant things that have occurred in their past. And in the, in, the, in the passage of their memories or the loss of their memories, they've lost really touch with who they are and, and what they uh, live for. Um, In Scripture, we're told to uh, make sure we don't forget the Lord, to uh, remember Him, to forget Him not. The Bible really is all about remembering. Have you noticed how often we're told to remember things in the Bible? Don't forget this. Don't forget that. Remember this. Now, we, we can't see the future, but we can at least look to the past and remember what has come about in the past. And really significant things in our faith are commemorated to help us uh, remember uh, the things that God has done for us. Think about the Passover. It's really kind of live-action role-play, LARPing. Have you ever thought about it? You know, there you are. You're supposed to gather as a family. You're not supposed to have any uh, 
you know, leaven in the house. And uh, you're supposed to eat a meal quickly as though you've got to run. And why do you do that? Well, in fact, the oldest son in the household asks his father, according to the way the meal is supposed to be observed, why are we doing this? <laughs> and then he tells the story. Tells the story of how God delivered the Israelites from the land of Egypt, from the, from the bondage that they suffered uh, uh, you know, under in, in that place. And, uh, and then, then we think about the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Every Sunday when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're looking back to what the Lord has done for us. Yes, there is a you know, there, there is a dimension to the observance in which we are looking forward. That's true. But the main thing is to recall what Christ has done for us so that that future that we're looking forward to, we can look forward to. Uh, when, we, when you think about it, in terms of the Christian faith, we kind of back into the future. We're looking backward to what God has done for us, and because that's the case, we can back into the future in faith, knowing that he's guiding us, directing us, even though we can't see everything we'd like to see and know everything we'd like to know about where we're going. It's because God has helped us in the past that we can be confident that God will help us in the future. That's the way it works. Now, why do we forget? Now, I know in my case, it's because I'm losing brain cells every day. You know, I forget things because brain cells have died that stored that information. That's a joke. That's supposed to be funny. You're probably just nodding yourself. Yeah, that's what we thought all along, Pastor Chris. And we thought when you told us that same story for the 700th time, it's because he's lost some brain cells. I wish he would lose the brain cells that contain that story. But... uh, I remember when I was a kid, and I was in uh, middle school, this is junior high, eighth grade, Mr. Figuerello's history class. Mr. Figuerello always had homework for us to do, and for some reason, I just never remembered to do my homework. Just never remembered. I was young, my brain cells were healthy, but I didn't remember to do my homework. And I remember one day, I remember one day, I said to Mr. Figuerello when he was asking for us to turn in our assignments. I forgot to do my homework. And he said, Mr. Wiley, it's the way he would address us. And he was from Brooklyn, so he had a Brooklyn accent, but I'm not going to try to to imitate that. But he said, Mr. Wiley, you didn't forget your homework. You didn't want to remember. That was true. (laughs) You know, when somebody says, hey, we're going to Conneaut Lake Park next Saturday, you don't forget. By the way, Conneaut Lake Park was the local amusement park where my high school was you know, located, or the junior high that I attended. If uh, Mr. Figuerello had said, we're going to go to Conneaut Lake Park on Saturday, I would circle that date in red. I would count down the days, only two more days, only one more day, because I'd be looking forward. I would remember, because I wanted to remember. We forget things often because we don't want to remember them. Why is it that we don't want to remember certain things? There are some things that I just don't want to remember, but I have to remember because if I don't remember, I'll get in trouble, like my paying my taxes <laughs> or my debts. Those are things I don't want to remember, but I'm compelled to remember. And I think really at the heart of things, when we forget certain things, it's because we don't want to remember because we also recall that memory of those things calls for certain things from us. I think one of the reasons why people tear down statues in our country and, and remember all the things that our ancestors did that were wrong 
And there were plenty of those things to, to note, you know, and to remember. But the reason I think we do that is because we don't want to remember the good things that we owe them. We th- more or less consider ourselves uh, free to disregard them and not express any gratitude for what we've received from them because obviously they were sinners and they did some things that they shouldn't have done. Therefore, our obligations are null and void. They've been canceled. Is that really the case, though? Is it possible that you can owe people, even though they're not perfect, owe them gratitude for the good things that they've done for you, even though they've also done some things that they shouldn't have done? Maybe even to you? Yes. You're still obliged to say thank you for the things that you are indebted to them for. Now, as for man, as for man... Um, well, before I get to that, let me just go back to verses uh, 3 through 6. What are, the th- what are we to remember here? I almost forgot to note. If you, you see the, these things that are listed here uh, in verses 3 through 6. He forgives us for our iniquities. He heals us of our diseases. He redeems our lives from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And he satisfies us with good things and renews us. Those are good things to remember. Those are good things that God has done for us. And if we remember those things, keep those things in mind, what should the response be? Well, the response should be love. 1 John 4.9, or 4.19 it is, I believe, yeah, 4.19. We love God, why? Because he first loved us. The more we recall that, the more we can stir ourselves up or the more able or capable we are of stirring up the love that we ought to express and direct toward him because of what he's done for us. Now, I want to jump down now to uh, verse 15 and reflect with you a little bit on what it means to be a human being. Uh, You see that addressed right there in that verse, as for man. As for man. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. The older I grow, the more people I have to remember because they're not here to talk to. There's empty spaces that they've left behind, and that's described here. It's a sad but uh, truth, but an inevitable thing to be reconciled to. Now, uh, one of the things that's uh, remarkable, though, is that in the course of human history, there have been people who have actually uh, maintained that human beings, uh, nevertheless, even though we are like grass, even though uh, we're here today and gone tomorrow, that we are the measure of all things. Have you ever heard that term, man is the measure of all things? It's Protagoras. He's one of the sophists, a philosopher that uh, sometimes gets uh, dredged up when the subject of humanism is brought up. There's a marvelous uh, uh, sort of a ironic and at the same time uh, providential and beautiful thing that occurred in Cambridge. I lived in Cambridge for about a decade. One of the things you, know, you think of when you think of Cambridge, you think of Harvard University, you also think of you know, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And when you think about those institutions today, you probably don't think about the biblical faith, the Christian faith. But uh, those institutions are very old, and there are still 
uh, things there that uh, you can look at and say, how did that happen? Because they're carryover. They carry over from an earlier period of time. If you go to, in fact, if you go to City Hall in Cambridge, you'll see right up over the doors, probably the most profound statement I've ever read in gold, uh, gold leaf, uh, declaring that all human laws, if they're to be just, must be based on, inspired by, and in conformity to the divine law. This is Cambridge. <laughs> Even Cambridge uh, enjoyed God's blessing at one time. Even Cambridge was a place where the Christian faith was the public faith of the people at one time. But one of the marvelous things uh, that occurred there was the dedication of Emerson Hall. Emerson Hall is the philosophy building at, on the, the uh, uh, quad uh, at Harvard. It's named for Ralph Waldo Emerson. Not a man uh, regarded uh, you know, for his Christian commitments. <laughs> uh, he was a transcendentalist. Anyway, I won't, I won't uh, you know, go into any detail with rela- relationship to Emerson. But uh, the faculty at uh, the School of Philosophy at, at Harvard had requested that the statement that Protagoras was known for, man is the measure, would be on the lentil over the door into the philosophy building. Well, the administration of the school at that time, this is the early 20th century, still had enough Christian faith sort of residual sort of at work in uh, the administration of the school that they didn't think that was such a great idea. So they decided they were going to put a different slogan up. But they kept it under uh, a uh, canvas so that as the workmen were carving it out, no one knew what was going on or could see what was being uh, engraved there. And then when the building was dedicated, they pulled away the canvas and it read, What is man that you are mindful of him? From Psalm 8, verse 4. And it's still there to this day. You can go online, look up Emerson Hall, and there it is. What is man? (laughs) Marvelous and and ironic development. But when we think about human beings and we think about them as our standard, uh, what we arrive at after just a little bit of reflection is that human beings are not stable and don't make a good standard for just about anything. We live in a world that sometimes is referred to as liquid modernity. Let me say that again. Liquid modernity. That's a term that was coined by a guy named uh, Zygmunt Bauman. And what he was referring to is the fact that in a world in which man is the measure, nothing is stable. It's liquid. Things lose their solidity. They they don't have the kind of uh, solidity that allows you to build anything with what you are thinking about. There's a quote that comes from Karl Marx, and I can't recall if this is from Das Kapital or... Um, the Communist Manifesto, but in reference to standards, he said, uh, all that is solid melts into air. All that is profane, holy is profaned. And that's the world that we live in now. We've lost touch with transcendent truths, and consequently everything is in flux. And it, it's as though we, we imagine ourselves to be what we see in the very early verses of the ch- first chapter of Genesis. God is there over the waters brooding. And we imagine ourselves there like Narcissus looking down into the waters and seeing our own reflections. And we entertain the the thought that we can divide the waters, that we can go back to the very beginning and start over. 
make up things that don't exist, rework reality so that it suits our fancies. We say, this is the way we want things to be, but in point of fact, we don't have the power to do that. Now, we live in a world that comes pre-ordered. It's because God said this is so that things are the way they are. He separates light from dark, day from night, land from water. He's the one who divides and forms and names. And because God divides and forms and names, things are the way they are. Now, it's true that we live in a world in which there is a lot of change. And in fact, that change is noted here in this uh, description of uh, our fate as human beings. We flourish like a flower of the field, but then the wind passes over us and we are gone. And this is something that another philosopher in antiquity noted. His name was Heraclitus, and he said, reality is nothing but constant change. In fact, there's so much change uh, that you really can't even step into the same river twice. The first time you step into the river, it's one thing, and the next time you step into the river, it's a different thing. The atoms that constitute the, the water that's flowing through the river, those are different atoms. Even the surface underneath the water, the surface of the, of the river has changed because of the things that have been moved around. Now, there was another thinker named Parmenides who actually believed that it's just the reverse. Nothing really changes. Everything is exactly the same all the time, and you don't even get to cha- step into the, into the river once because all change is illusory. This has got kind of an eastern feel to it, if you get my drift that uh, change is not really real, but there is something permanent that can't change. And so we're left with this, this set of options. Heraclitus, everything is changing. There is no stability. Then we got Parmenides, everything is solid and doesn't change, and there is no change, and that's the illusion. And we know kind of deep down inside that neither of those things is true. How could they be true? So what is the point of stability? What can we look to and say, that is the measure, that is the standard. Scripture tells us that it's the Word of God. The Lagos, meaning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that implies that the source of the the stability that uh, we, we all kind of long for, if we've got any sense at all, is not a thing, but a person. And this person is the one through whom the Father in heaven communicates to us. He's the one through whom all things came into being and for whom all things were made. And he is the head over all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Word. Now, what we look to for stability when it comes to him is his steadfast love. See that there in verse 17? But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. That's our point of reference, the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, when we think about love, stability doesn't necessarily come to mind, right? Particularly if we think of love as an emotion, just some kind of, urge that comes over us. You know, in our society today, there are many 
songs, popular songs that conflate lust with love. You're not really sure what the singer is talking about. At one point in the song, he seems to be talking about something noble, and the next point in the song, you say, well, no, there's something else going on here. <laughs> and because that's the case, because we have, have confused um, our emotions with the nature of love, uh, very often the relationships that we enter into are unstable. Our emotional state is always in flux. It's like Heraclitus said, it just is always changing. And consequently, the people that at one moment tell us, I love you, another time say something quite different. They're not stable. But we're told here that God's love, this love, the Lord's love, is steadfast. It's reliable. It's solid. It's something that we can turn to. It's, it's something more along the lines of devotion to duty. Now, when you're devoted to your duty, you've got a standard, your duty, and you love performing your duty. And in the same way, the love of God is steady because God has intent on demonstrating his love to us. And we're told that this is in accordance with his judgments. And that's implied in verse 19. Take a look at verse 19 with me, if you would. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Now, that might seem like a non sequitur, like going from love to rule going from uh, having affection directed toward us to judgment. Because a lot of people in our world today more or less consider uh, non-judgmentalism to be the essence of love. Have you noticed this? If you were a more loving person, you wouldn't be you know, judging anybody. You wouldn't sort of expect people to behave in certain ways. After all, love is love, right? I mean... What do they mean when they say love is love? That's a tautology, by the way. It doesn't tell you anything. But what I think they're actually getting at is whatever emotion sort of wells up within you is just as valid as any similar emotion that wells up in somebody else. There really is no sort of standard for judgment. Who are you to say that this emotion is better than that emotion simply because the object of affection is different? But here we're told that it's because, or it's implied that it's because God has established his throne that we can know his love. God demonstrates his love to us through his judgments. He sits on the throne, and because he sits on the throne, he providentially orders all things. And because he providentially orders all things, he cares for us as he orders them. It's his rule that makes our care possible. Because he providentially orders all things, he can forgive our iniquities. He has the authority to do that, and that's a judgment. And the judgment was carried out when his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, took our sins upon himself so that God could demonstrate his mercy to us. There's no conflict here between the judgments of God and the love of God. In fact, it's because God is a steadfast and loving and righteous judge that we can know his favor and, that, and we can uh, remember the good things that he's done for us. We can give him credit, in other words, for those things. So we're invited to join the chorus. 
There is a chorus. You see the chorus here at the very end of the psalm, verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all places of his dominion. Now, the term, bless the Lord, is actually the very phrase that opens the psalm. If you go back and you look at the very first phrase, the very first sentence, bless the Lord, O my soul, and then we see at the very end the same thing stated, bless the Lord, O my soul, very tight and uh, uh, sort of contained circle that is completed here in the psalm. But it might puzzle you, man. How do you bless the Lord? Have you thought about that? How do I bless the Lord? Isn't blessing something that God does to me? How am I supposed to return the favor? Well, there you go. Return the favor. The phrase, return the favor, it's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? Because when we use the word favor, on one hand, we're referring to a disposition. I've enjoyed his favor. And on the other hand, we're referring to something that someone does for us. He's done me a favor. So because he's done me a favor, I can return the favor. And that's what's being referred to here is because God has favored you and me, we should return the favor. We should bless the Lord, praising him and obeying him. And uh, it's, a, it's sort of like a kind of trickle-down uh, dynamic. If you look at this uh, set of verses here, 20 through 22, you can intuit a hierarchy. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all the places of his dominion. Can you see the trickling down? This hierarchy, the word hierarchy, as I've noted many, many times, it means sacred order. And in this sacred order, there is a trickle down of blessing, each level of the hierarchy looking upward and praising the Lord, thanking the Lord, blessing the Lord, because the Lord has been good to every level of this hierarchy. And finally, uh, we arrive at the soul of the psalmist, and hopefully your soul as well. And like a tree that's growing uh, in a rainforest that enjoys the nourishment that is descending, that's falling from above, your response is to well up with life and strength and goodness and return the favor. Bless the one who has blessed you. Be favorable to the one who has favored you. And in a minute, we're going to remember something that was done for us that was definitely a demonstration of God's favor. Do this in remembrance of me. It's because we remember what God has done for us that we can note that he has shown us favor and we can return the favor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your favor. Thank you for all of the blessings that we enjoy that have been enumerated in this psalm. We pray, Lord, that we will never forget all your benefits. In Christ's name, amen.